Hello everyone, and welcome back to part 2 of the media that made us. Should this be your first time listening, this is the second and final part, and therefore we highly encourage that you go back and give part 1 a listen first. Auto Comics is now also on Blue Sky, and this weekend we asked for folks to share their comic project with us, which they so graciously did. Head on over to the Artopod on Blue Sky and scroll through all the fantastic work people posted. And one final thing before we jump into today's episode. I just do all the editing of the show, and while I love it, it's also a lot of work. If you'd like to pitch in and support all the effort that goes into making this as squeaky clean as I can possibly do, any pledge to my Patreon, patreon.com slash jaws underscore stone, would be of tremendous help. Thank you for your time and your consideration. Let's dive into this. Hi. I'm Paul Duffield, a comic book artist currently haunted by the tones of Salvatore's ice cream truck, which you may hear in the background of this podcast, if you're lucky. Hi, I'm Jaws. I had a really fucking wholesome story about sheep petting, and then we had 30 minutes of tech issues, so now I'm full tilt. I listened to last week's episode this week, and one thing you said that really stuck with me was how you sometimes struggled differentiating what inspires you and what you want to inspire you. Oh, yeah. That really hit me like a gut punch when I was re-listening. And then I remember texting you after we were done going, oh no, I forgot something under the TV and shows section. And it was Twin Peaks. Oh, I can't believe I don't have Twin Peaks on mine. The thing is, I had to take a real fucking hard look in the mirror and go, I adore Twin Peaks. I have a Twin Peaks tattoo. It is my heart and soul. I don't know how much it creatively inspires me. And this is a thing that I say a lot when I watch somebody else attempt to do Lynchian stuff. And if you never watched anything David Lynch, it's very hard to describe, but he is very often given the label of dreamlike. A lot of people try to be David Lynch, but David Lynch doesn't try to be David Lynch. He just is David Lynch. And there's a huge difference with that. Yeah. And I am not David Lynch. And he's clever on the level that I... Quite frankly, don't know if I'll ever be on that level of giving no flying fucks. So yeah, <laughs> I wanted to open with the fact that that point really landed with me. And I, I would shamefully have to take Twin Peaks off my list. I actually have a I have one that I forgot to mention last week as well that, that I think is a perfect companion to that. When I was probably about you know, 21, 22, I was in university a new story was sort of coming to me and I had this book full of notes, really fragmented notes, just just ideas, themes, a little bit about the characters. And then I went to watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and I just threw the notebook in the bin because that was the film. Oh no. That was the perfect realisation of all of the themes and concepts I'd been fiddling with. But I also knew at the same time that there was no way in hell that I was ever going to pull them into something so cohesive with such good characters. That's one of those ones where I can't say honestly that it's influenced me, although I would desperately like it to. We kind of wrapped up movies and shows last time. Today we're starting off with video games. Do you want to start with what you have on your list? Oh yeah, sure. So I have two video games that influence me deeply in one instance, and then many, many years later the sequel influenced me. A RPG called Suikoden, which was originally released on the PlayStation. 2 was just absolutely mind-blowing. The level of the world-building in that, there, there are something like 109 recruitable characters, of which around 60 are playable. 
that kind of depth and the grand story because it still has an excellent story. I've played it very recently. It really deeply influenced me at the time. And then later on, a sequel called Seacoden Tearchris. When I was writing The Firelight Isle, I was looking for a really rich kind of costume design. And I'd bought a lot of huge books about world costume design and historical costume design and found patterns. And I'd been doing things like trying to craft my own clothes in order to figure out how I might fold these costumes. And something was lacking in my designs. They were, they were feeling a bit flat. And then I saw Sukoden Tearchris. The character designer has done this incredible job of creating unique silhouettes and looks for around 10 different cultures to the point where you can just glance at a character and even if their costume is very different from another character, you can tell what nation they come from. And seeing the skill with which that character designer had taken on this huge world gave me the inspiration to improve the silhouettes of the clothing from a character design perspective rather than from a research perspective and that's been a massive influence on my costume design ever since. My big teenage dream was being a character designer. Like everybody else, I was not special. Everybody wants to be a character designer at some point it seems. Yeah. The thing is, as an adult, I can feel myself slowly coming back around to that. What it brought to my mind is that I got one of the highest compliments that I could possibly think about in my stream a while back. And I do think I mentioned something akin to, I would love to do art assets for games. And a viewer in my chat went, oh, you could definitely do stuff like for the Hades games or something. And I went, ah, oh, my heart. That is like, love arrow to my heart, dude. Yeah. Those character designs are gorgeous. They're wild. I am not on that level, just to put that out there. But I will say it really did rekindle this dormant dream that I've had of doing those kind of assets for games. I can absolutely imagine you doing something like that. If any game studios with very healthy, nice work environments and good pay are listening, it's me, your girl, (laughs) at jawscommission at gmail.com. Hit me up. She's very good. It oh, would be a good you. choice. Thank you. Okay, before we we get away with me dying because I'm Norwegian and I can't accept compliments, let me talk about my first game on the list. Oh, yes, of course. We were talking about games. <laughs> Believe it or not. Which is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time slash Majora's Mask. Classics. I don't know what to compare it to, but it's kind of saying that you really fucking love cheese. No one is surprised. No one is offended. Everyone's like, uh-huh, yeah, cheese is really good. <laughs> specifically with both Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask for me, is that back in the day, it's going to be hard to imagine this for ye young whippersnapper zoomers potentially listening to this, probably not anymore after I just said that, (laughs) that when you bought games back in the day, back when we were young, you actually got these little booklets accompanying your games. And some of those booklets would contain art assets from the game. So character designs, illustrations, stuff like that to really yassify the entire experience of you playing the game. I miss those. Oh, same. And I loved flicking through those and looking at all the iterations of Link, both Child Link and calling him Adult Link is LUL because I think he's 17 or 18. But anyway, Past Link and Future Link in the Ocarina of Time brochure was just... I think that's where my obsession with noses started. In, in mm. case you've never seen Link from Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, he has a hella pointed nose. Oh! Yeah, there was definitely a period of really intense noses. They also profoundly impacted me, obviously with the music by Koji Kondo, which is iconic. 
I know someone is probably gonna chuckle in their beards when I say the environment felt so alive and rich. When you look at the graphics today, they're <laughs> probably anything but. They're quite sparse. It's hard to picture today with stuff like God of War Ragnarok and those kind of games that the environment of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask were off the charts for its time and made you feel like you were actually really in a world. What has impacted my form of storytelling is a lot of different kind of people with different backgrounds, with different conflicts with one another in a concentrated area. Yeah, those are my first games. And to just put it out there, I'm a Majora's Mask person over Ocarina of Time. The um, the connoisseur's choice. <laughs> the artiste's choice. Yes. <laughs> In a very similar vein, uh, my next game will surprise absolutely no one. It is Final Fantasy VII. Oh, yes. I was the PlayStation bro. I spurned Nintendo and later discovered how idiotic I was. But Final Fantasy VII, Jesus, it was like one of the first games I ever played. My parents were very anti and, and so they didn't get me a console or anything like that. And, you know, they were also very, very expensive. So it wasn't until sort of my mid-teens that I managed to finally persuade them to get me a console. And you can imagine going from never having played a video game to playing Final Fantasy VII, which still stands up in terms of detail and story, as mm -hmm. you can tell, because they're desperately trying to remake it. Have you played the remake? I have played the remake and really enjoyed it. Same. I loved it. I'm obsessed about the Seven remake. Yeah. And interestingly, echoing your experience again, it was partly that little game manual with Nomura's original designs in it that I would absolutely pour over and be like, oh, look at this, it's amazing. Oh, I wouldn't be able to draw <laughs> like this. And I think along with that, aesthetically speaking, the beginning of another RPG called Wild Arms. Now, this whole RPG didn't really have much an effect on me, but it has this still beautiful today fully animated introductory sequence you can if you google wild arms intro hd you'll be able to watch it and that deep 90s anime aesthetic that nomura had sort of like tapped into and this wild arms intro is completely typifies just absolutely hit me with the influence hammer my next game on the list is another non-shocker elder scrolls 3 morrowind oh yeah I played this in my mid-teens on my very first self-built PC. It did allow me to play Morrowind on the highest graphics back then, which was mind-numbingly good, believe it or not. To go from something that could suddenly feel limiting, like a Zelda game or something similar, to a game where it quite literally felt like a sandbox, you could just go in any direction and find something to do, be it kill a crab, get chased by Cliff Racer until you just close the game and never open it again, <laughs> pick up a quest line from some random dude who wanted you to kill a flying jellyfish with a fork. It was just like no end to how alive this world felt with the plethora of choices. Now, I do know that it's become kind of popular to hate on Bethesda, and I kind of have to admit that I'm one of those people who's not super enamored by the studio anymore, since I do believe that Todd Howard makes the consumer base pay to playtest his games. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it lightly. Disregarding all of that, and just encapsulating the memory of Morrowind and the music, the environment. To this day, I have actively included mushroom trees in my comic world. Oh. 
when you first encounter an instance of something that's kind of become a bit of an archetype. Had people done mushroom trees before Morrowind? Probably. Had I ever seen it? No. Have I seen it a million times since? Yes. Do I care? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my next game is a double bill. Ico and Shadow of the Colossus. Oh my god! I can't believe I've never drawn the parallel of you and these games. They are made for you, or you are made for them. Oh, absolutely. The sense of design, the sense of world, the beautiful use of limitation. I still think the original, not the remakes, the original Ico and the Shadow of the Colossus, they still look good because they were designed to look good on those graphics. Mm -hmm. You know, they used the limitations of the textures available to them and of the level of detail available to them to make an aesthetic that just really hit home in a very, very visceral way. I absolutely love them. I describe it as kind of cultural fantasy where people have taken a fantasy environment, but they've not just done your cookie cutter, cod medieval British fantasy. One thing that I super adore is the subtlety to it, where nothing is really explain to you you just show up at effectively the door of this temple with a unconscious person and then you just have to go and slay a bunch of giants to resurrect them you are never lore dumped never overexposed no nothing the language isn't even a real language you don't understand what they're saying that's the kind of stuff that when you nail it it is my favorite thing on planet earth just let me perceive something and enjoy something and take away my own impressions and ideas of it that is so difficult to do right but shadow colossus does it one hundo uh, yeah amazingly and it, it starts doing that a certain extent in ico it's, it's got a similar sort of setup uh, and then it just takes it to a next level in shadow of the colossus which has this expansive environment and these ruins that you wonder about and a world that feels so tantalizingly close to you yet you're one theory away from fully understanding it at any given point i loved that so do you have any, any more video games for our list? I do. I have two. And they probably couldn't be more different. So the first one is the Silent Hill series. Oh, yeah. I feel like I sh should specify that specifically for me, and again, kind of like claiming that cheese is the bee's knees, it's Silent Hill 2. No one is surprised. No one is gasping. No one is clutching their pearls. I am nodding, though. In my opinion, horror games have never been better. I think Silent Hill 2 is the peak of what a really good horror game is for me, where, again, you are not spoon-fed. It is very obtuse at times. It has a lot of world-building through design and interaction instead of someone, like, deep-throating you with text for 10 minutes at a time. It has fantastic soundtrack by Akira Yamaoka. I first played Silent Hill as a teenager. I have always been a sissy pussy. Stuff easily scare me. But Silent Hill kind of was my horror therapy. Having to go through Silent Hill 1, 2, 3, and 4 at the time kind of numbed me a little bit and became this entryway to a bunch of horror. Suddenly I could watch all the movies that I couldn't watch before. I could participate in so much media that had previously been behind this gate of scare and fear for me. Silent Hill in its own made me obsessed about fake religion, creating fake religion for your stories, and especially evil religion. I became a huge monster fucker obsessor after Pyramid Head entered the scene. <laughs> to this day, he... Some would probably cancel me for saying that he is hella sexy, but I also see enough sexy art of him out there to know that I'm not alone. You are not, no. Pyramid Head, corrupter of the youth. <laughs> Oh yes, absolutely. Slay me, daddy. Anyway, 
I feel like I should say, I don't know to what extent it creatively impacted me. I would struggle drawing direct parallels from what I do since I don't necessarily make a lot of horror myself. But it meant so much to me and it allowed me to become braver in so many ways that I think without it I would have been a more boring creative today. So even though I don't actively create horror myself, there's a lot of sub-elements like the fake religion, like the occult, like the monsters that really stuck with me. I love doing monster stuff today. So I'm going to just take everything you said for the last couple of minutes, copy paste it and put myself in it instead and, and that would have been my next game. <laughs> Are we predator handshaking on shagging pyramid heads? I think we are, yeah. <laughs> good, good. And actually, interestingly, something you said about Silent Hill gave me an insight into how it impacted me that I'd never realized before. Oh. Exactly the same thing about it opening me up to not feeling as frightened. It was my very first horror experience, and I was absolutely not a horror watcher. You know, I wouldn't touch a slasher or, or anything like that. And I still remember when you first get to the apartments in Silent Hill 2, the further you go up the stairs, the more Yamaoka's discordant music builds and the more this sense of threat builds and the dark, darker it gets. I couldn't go up those stairs for weeks. Like literally I would come back to the game because it would be so enthralling. That stuck with me so much and overcoming it stuck with me so much. I'd never sort of credited Silent Hill with opening up a whole new world of media, but it, exactly the same as you, it did. But there was a more specific way in which Silent Hill influenced my art, and this becomes coupled with music, because around the, the time I was getting into Silent Hill 2, I was also getting into Nine Inch Nails, and the album art on Nine Inch Nails covers and the aesthetic of grungy, grimy, crackly, dirty music that's in Trent Reznor's mixing and also Yamaoka's mixing. It got me obsessed with grunge, grime, dirt, urban decay. And I used to go around taking photographs of rusting walls and dripping metal and things like that. And that hugely influenced my art. And for a very long time, I used photographic textures in my comics, knocked back a little bit and kind of warped around objects as if they were textures in a 3D program in order to give my art kind of uh, grain and texture. And that was all because of that Nine Inch Nails Silent Hill combo. That's amazing. I too used a lot of much more grungy asphalt texture and stuff like that in my ye old art. And oh. it, of course, looked terrible since my stuff is famously very flat. I don't shade a lot, if at all, and I do not render. So <laughs> when you had these super amateur hour flat colored Photoshop drawings with some asphalt slapped upon them, it looked horrendous. But yeah, I yeah. had the same era of just mm, texture up to 11. Mm, yes, I'm Silent Hill now, baby. Yeah, absolutely. I did this. I went through the same thing. You know, there would be a picture of somebody and their shirt would literally be a picture of peeling paint. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love that we were equally edgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My last one, and arguably the biggest one out of all of these, is Red Dead Redemption. Oh, yeah. I know, again, I feel like for 90% of the stuff I bring to the table, I have to start with the fucking disclaimer that I know that these people are terrible for XYZ reasons, so I'm, I'm just not gonna go that deep into it. You can look into it yourself if you're very curious. Know that I know, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. In similar veins to Quentin Tarantino that I mentioned last 
episode, you can see a very clear through line to the stuff that I gravitate towards. And it's really fucking hella tight storytelling with interesting character. Characters that make you laugh, that make you angry, that make you cry. But most of all characters that make you really invested in what you're currently experiencing. And Red Dead Redemption just blew me away the first time I played it. Not only did it look, again, fantastic for its time, but to be able to partake in a world where every single thing that you do seems planned out yet fun and not overly controlled is such a hair thin fine balance that rockstar really struck with both red dead 1 and i personally like red dead 2 better but it's way too it's way too recent to apply the same kind of gravitas of inspiration as red dead 1 and had i not played red dead 1 red dead 2 wouldn't have held the same or even a better benchmark since i wouldn't have brought the table of nostalgia and previously experienced impressions. The environment, the storytelling, the characters, the dialogue, which Rockstar is famous for or sometimes infamous for, is just my cup of joe through and through. Yeah, absolutely. And I I never played Red Dead 1, but I watched a lot of Red Dead 2 over my partner's shoulder. I nearly put it down just from having seen bits of it. They're stunning games. The way they handle storytelling and gameplay at the same time. I think if I could confidently say, you know, like I was a games designer or I was in the game industry, games industry, then I'd have to put it down as an influence because there would be no way I wouldn't be striving for that. Mm. But it's not really relevant to making comics. So um... for me, it's hella relevant since the way that Rockstar create characters. And again, not the shitty characters, not the problematic characters, but the characters with a lot of heart and grit. Those are the kind of characters that I create as well. I love a nuanced, complicated character that isn't good or bad, but is human. And when Rockstar does that well, they do it phenomenally. Funnily enough, it was Ghibli movies that first introduced me to that sort of flawed villain, flawed hero, real person who doesn't fall into your standard good and evil tropes. I think that Mm. was a big influence. Everything happening in Princess Mononoke. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So my last game probably had the biggest impact on me out of any of these, and it's much more recent than most of them and it's journey which absolutely just i have never cried so much at any media except for one film which is silent running and anyone who's seen it will know why yeah but journey just sorry i'm <laughs> i'm getting incoherent here i don't know how to sum this up i struggle with the same when i'm talking about this when i listened back to the previous episode i i felt like all i did the entire episode was going it's really good i really like it yeah 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 that's why i felt like i sound like the entire fucking episode and i like yeah. in my palm i visioned my face and i was like just fucking say something a little fucking coherent can you sound like you actually yeah. know what you're fucking talking about and when it's something that means clearly so much to you as journey seems to do to you it's really tricky putting that into words it really is journey embedded its theme into every single piece of itself and that's what i admired about it the theme was is the cycle of life things that you go through things that civilizations go through cycles of life and death and it is so incredibly encapsulated in the way that you explore your environment in the way that you quote-unquote power up over the process of the game and then lose your powers as you grow older quote-unquote in the game it's encapsulated in the soundtrack it's encapsulated in the level structure and the way that they progress and that final scene just holy crap like it's making me slightly wobbly even thinking about it now 
it's to the point where I haven't really played it much afterwards because it was so affecting that also I'm a bit worried it's not going to affect me that way. I'm worried that I'm not going to experience it again to the same level. It's a sort of damned if I do, damned if I don't thing. And Journey is another one of these games that I really want to influence me and I'm not sure if it has yet. Hopefully it will sometime. (laughs) The moment you said Journey, I again had that thing going, oh yeah, just with how you draw draped clothing in your current ongoing comic gives me journey vibes. Ah, yeah, you got all the ribbons and uh, yeah. and flowing cloth and stuff. Yeah, that, that journey came out after I started working on that. It sort of fell into a bunch of aesthetics and styles and themes that I was already working with. And it wasn't a Eternal Sunshine experience where I was like, damn it, throw the book away. It was more <laughs> of sort of like an uplifting, holy shit, yeah, yeah, this is validating kind of experience. I know it can be very infuriating when people go, oh, I totally see you in that, or I can see that you're influenced or inspired by this. And I really try to phrase that in a way where I don't go, oh my God, your stuff totally reminds me of XYZ. Because when people say that to me, again, I envision their fictional face in the palm of my hand and I once again smack my fist into it because I get so annoyed. <laughs> I will say there have been times I've been very very flattered when people say these things it's all in the way you phrase it and how humble and careful you are about delivering this compliment this is like the most fucking long about way of trying to make a point that i've ever done and i'm very good at making those long-winded is that that's what i'm trying to do when i say to you that i can see your influences but in the most complimentary nice way that i can say that yeah yeah exactly my next list is artists. Do you have anything for that? or I also have an artist list, yes. So one I already mentioned last episode, which was Hiroki Okira, the character designer I discovered was behind everything I loved and didn't realize until I wrote this list. So moving swiftly on, the next one's a bit of a left turn. Still a Japanese artist, like a lot of these. An artist called uh, Takaya Miyu, and she is really unusual. If you look up her work, fair warning, very not safe for work, it is incredibly gothic, incredibly decorative, almost sort of old-fashioned looking in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. But her use of decorative page design, she does these almost illustrations, almost comic pages. You can barely read them because they're so interpretative and decorative, but at the same time, they are still comic pages. And the length to which she pushed the form of comics into a form of artwork incredibly influenced the way I see the page as an entire piece of art, as well as each individual panel as a piece of art. You know when I said last episode that I wish I wasn't such a hater? <laughs> this is probably the most mainstream thing that's going to come out of my mouth, and I'm almost a little ashamed of it. And I probably can't even pronounce it correctly, but Alphonse Musha? Oh, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about there. It's one of those sort of my favorite, my favorite food is sugar or something. You know, it, it's an obvious statement, but... Mukha's art is so influential and so beautiful. I have Googled several times how to pronounce the name, and it seems it's like an accent or a dialect thing. Some say Mukha, some say Musha. I don't know which is correct. For those of you who aren't familiar, for some weird-ass reason, he is the single-handedly biggest Art Nouveau illustrator that existed. He's the one that everyone knows if they've even been remotely invested in a creative field at some time. You can easily recognize his work by the fact that he has very bold outlines, usually black or very, very dark outlines, a bunch of intricate details 
especially in the hair. And then everything inside the outline is flat and muted colors. And even to this day, I will have to admit my roots that that's where I have my bold outlines and flat colors from. Golden Era illustration in general is on my list. Muka was working at a time when Nouveau was a big influence, but there are a bunch of artists working in a similar mode with slightly different styles, uh, included Edmund Dulac, Aubrey Beardsley, and uh, I, I tend to treat them as a set, but specifically Aubrey Beardsley I really like because he did something a little bit raw, a little bit more interesting. Glad to hear that you've also been deeply steeped in the Art Nouveau. I do suspect it has something to do with this kind of art style translates really well to digital work. If you look at his work today, it could have just as well been digital painting or digitally crafted. So yeah, he is is definitely up there for me, but uh, also someone I've actively tried to distance myself from to not just be another Nouveau clone. Because there's a lot of it out there. The duplicate style, but not the substance of this era of illustration. And you can tell when somebody is sort of, they're one of those artists who takes her favorite character and then copies a border that Alphonse Mucha has drawn in another piece of his art and then puts favorite character in the middle of the border or something like that. And quite often when they do that, they're not really grabbing the essence of what made his art great, which was, for me at least, his incredible gestural figure work. It is so, so expressive. And the volumetric control he has, despite how flat all of his line work is, is just off the chain. And I think that particular aspect of his work was really pioneering for the future of animation, as far as I'm concerned. I should just cut out everything I just said and be like, I really like this guy, and then cut paste what you just said, since you described <laughs> perfectly what it is that I'm taking away from his stuff, which is the volume and the gestures. Right, yeah, yeah. I've got an artist called Tatsuki Tanaka, and I've touched upon his work very, very briefly before. He is a member of Studio 4 Degrees C, and I do love his animation, but it was specifically an art book of his that I picked up called Cannabis Works that (gasps) really amazingly influenced me. And and this book became a bit of an underground hit amongst artists when it was uh, finally released over here. I remember everyone kind of whispering about it and saying, oh, have you got a copy? Have you got a copy? It is really beautiful. Again, the quality in Tanaka's work is very similar to the quality in Muka's work. He has this incredible spare expression of form and gesture when he draws people. In the most simple way, with just one clean fluid line, I admire that so deeply. It was like everything that I saw in Joshua Middleton's work that I loved, refined from what I would say would be somebody with way, way more drawing experience than Middleton. Because when you're an animator, you just draw, 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 draw. You never stop it in a way that is more intense than even in comics. And that kind of effortless quality in, in Tanaka's work, I'm still trying to capture in my own. Maybe I will one day. <laughs> the next one on my list is James Jean. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah, and you know what? I would have put him down if I'd remembered. Oh, yeah. Well, for people who are not familiar, uh, by now, James Jean is basically an artistic empire. He does so much. He has worked with so many big brands. When I first discovered him was in my teens again, as with most of this. I found an art book that just contained all the Fable covers. If you're not familiar with Fable, it's a comic. His style has changed dramatically since then. What he does now 
I own a couple of his private work. It's very different. I still appreciate it, and it's much more artistically free, arguably, than the Fable stuff. I have since very much fallen off the James Jean train. I seek out folks within my same circles and stuff like that for inspiration these days, and not so much the big famous names. And not for like any elitist reasons, it's just that I now know much more specifically exactly what I gravitate towards, and that is what a lot of my art friends and mutuals provide. And interestingly, you've reminded me of someone else I should have put on this list after I sort of fell off that James Jean train, because I could basically do the same thing as we did with the Silent Hill and just say replicate what you just said and <laughs> add me instead. Toma Haneke, I absolutely love his illustration. It's a bit rawer than James Jean's. I wouldn't even say it's that similar. It was just in the same sort of era. I moved from James Jean to Toma Haneke as one of my biggest sort of ooh, shiny new influences. And I think Toma Haneke's use of flat colours and incredible punchy signature colours sometimes really influenced the way that I coloured. So I was actually going to mention a couple of names on the list. Instead of naming individual people, I'm going to say that the remaining inspiration list for me, as I touched upon with James Jean, is all my art mutuals and art friends of today, and probably more that I find in the future. By now, in my mid-30s, I have been able to hone in on what I gravitate towards, what I want to do, how I want to do it, and who I want to be influenced by doing this. So just scrolling through a lot of the folks that I follow on both Tumblr and Blue Sky, which are the current platforms that I'm on, a lot of these already have very strong established voices that really influence me. Not in a way where I try to recreate it, but I get really driven by seeing all the stuff that they put out there. When I see all the hard work that they put into realizing their ideas and creations, it inspires me to do the same. You too want to leave an impact, is what I tell myself, which is, at the end of the day, it's what I want to do. I really want to leave an impact. I'm not going to leave any children behind. I'm probably not going to leave any impressive legacy. And I just really want something creative that I made to make any kind of difference. I'm not there yet. I don't know if I'll ever be there, but I would love to be. Mm, yeah, absolutely. In that kind of vein, I've got a couple of remaining names. And these are names I think of as sort of deep cut names. Names that are so influential that I just cannot detangle them for myself or my art. One of them is Ursula Le Guin. She was an author who worked on a range of things, mostly science fiction, although she's, she's known for Earthsea, which is probably be her most favorite series. I read her books since my dad was able to read them to me as a little child, and I've been reading them ever since. Ursula Le Guin was the first author I ever saw playing with the concept of gender, for example in a way that completely blew my mind. There was a science fiction story in which people on an alien planet changed gender in a particular month, and for the rest of the time they were completely genderless. I read that when I was about sort of 12 back in the 90s. The idea of that hadn't even started to touch popular culture at the time. The second one is my partner Kate. I met her when I was 16, and the first thing that I saw was her holding her portfolio. I was like, I want to talk to that girl. <laughs> um, and I remember seeing her art and thinking it was just the most incredible thing. And we have since worked 
on projects together, worked in the same office for over 18 years, I think, nearly now. Bloody hell. Shared techniques, shared inspirations, ideas, shared angsts and worries and absolutely everything you can about art. And I cannot detangle her art from mine in that respect, although we are very different. And then similarly to you, everybody who I follow and the people that I've come to know in the art industry, there are too many to name, but, you know, because I'm sitting here with you, you're among them. Aww. And your art has inspired me. Doing this podcast has inspired me. So that's been wonderful. Yeah, I feel like I, I have said that so many times by now, but doing this podcast with you has, not to put like too much pressure on you, but it's therapy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I see it the same way. I do think there's one last thing that I would really love to bring to the table that is both current, but isn't new to me personally. The thing that I keep coming back to, I have done it on and off again since I was 17, and it's Dungeons and Dragons, or just tabletop gaming. It has this collaborative storytelling quality that is hard to find anywhere else since it's constantly alive, constantly shifting and changing, and it's so open to what you want to bring to the table, no pun intended. It's something that you arguably can't do alone. You need other people for this to become a thing. And I am so fortunate that the game that I have just started DMing, I am playing with three creative people, and it's such a joy to be able to create this entire world for them to just bask in. In turn, they influence me and what I do. And it's like this symbiotic creative relationship that I just adore. I have a very similar experience about sort of seven or eight years ago, I started going to a very large LARP that for anyone who's not familiar, that's live action role playing, which is basically the stand up in a field version of tabletop role playing. I went to Empire LARP, which is one of the biggest in the UK, I think the biggest in the UK. And I've been going ever since. And the level of inspiration, creativity, community in that game is just unparalleled. And the way that people talk about tabletop gaming when they're really into it is very similar. And that's fed back into my creative energy a lot. And there are even people at LARP who've got to know my character, then read my comics and said, oh my God, I can see your character at LARP in your comics, which is a really weird experience. The themes that I have taken away from all of this is strong storytelling, interesting characters, dark undertones, queer characters, the sign that grab you. And to that note, I added, I grew up in an inherently uncreative environment. Had it not been for media, I'd have nothing. To this day, I'd be alone and isolated without the internet. And it took me a long while to curate a creative network online. Even now, I don't have that in my real life. If it wasn't for all the media that I mentioned today, I don't know that I would be a creative person. Yeah, absolutely. I think I could probably say the same thing as well. So in two weeks, we are back to our regular schedule of doing comics again. This has been such a joy, and I hope it's been fun listening to it. Have you been craving our more typical comic talk? Fear not, we got you. Because in two weeks, we are talking about Rhodesia, which is written by Kari Lynch and drawn by Bailey Rosenlund. I'm really looking forward to this one. Is this the first self-published comic that we've had on the show? I think it might be. Yeah, I think so. Good one to start with. This is the first comic that you can legally read free online as far as I'm concerned. I think it's on Tapas and Webtoon. It's easy. Just Google Rhodesia and you'll find it. See you for that one. Thank you so much for these two self-indulgent episodes. 
yeah thank you it's, it's been really eye-opening i've loved it until next time bye bye sorry there is someone backing up for fucking ever outside and i'm really worried that my microphone picks up so my entire speech is going to be beep 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 for 20 minutes of some <laughs> fucking truck so i'm just going to go close i'm going to let the recording run but i'm going to go close the windows bear me okay the biggest insult I've ever received was this dude bro stumbling into my stream and saying that my work had Stanley Kubrick vibes. Oh no. <laughs> Two people were like, is this Sam Elliott? And I went, oh, fuck my asshole. You are so dead to me. Who's Sam Elliott? <laughs> do, you, do you not know who Sam Elliott is? But a mustache alone does not a man make. <laughs> no. Is this a guy who also has a mustache? <laughs>